All right, we're going to talk about our last Sunday school myth today. Uh, there are other ones that we could have done, some that people uh, I've seen that, that people have said they thought were in the Bible that aren't, including things like charity begins at home. This too shall pass. Good things come to those who wait. All men are created equal. Anybody know where that's from? Declaration of Independence, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust is not in there. And then whosoever will may come is not in there. That's actually a hymn by Philip Bliss. All right? So there are a lot of those that could be there. One pastor said, a guy came up to him, he said, it's amazing how, how much Shakespeare gets quoted as biblical. All right? A guy came up to him one time and said, Pastor, doesn't it say in the Bible that how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child? And the pastor said, no, that was King Lear. That was not in the Bible, all right? Uh, Somebody else wrote some things that you would never think would be in the Bible, but that you might get confused when you were trying to say things you thought were in the Bible, like time wounds all heals. He who laughs last thinks the slowest. The shortest between two points is usually under construction. And a day without sunshine is night. And so... Here's what I hope you've learned, okay? I hope you've learned that when someone says, the Bible says, that we need to be a little more cautious about saying, oh, you're right. Now, I don't think you have to say, give me chapter verse right now. Come on. All right? But where? Where where does it say that? Well, it says it somewhere. Well, have you ever seen it in there? Well, I'm sure I have. Well, I, I need more than that to say the Bible says. All right? It's that idea that, that we... Um, think we know the Bible, and people say things all the time that aren't in there. Tonight we're going to talk about one that maybe you don't think is in the Bible, but there are a lot of people in the world that think is in the Bible. And it is from William Shakespeare. To thine own self be true. I actually heard this quoted in an interview with the new basketball coach at Tennessee. He, uh, They were asking him about what he had learned, and he grew up under. He played under a coach named Gene Cady, who's a long-time coach. And uh, he said, "What were they asking? What did you learn from Coach Cady?" He said, "Well, the thing I learned most wasn't about basketball, but he taught me to thine own self be true, and that you'll never go wrong." Well, that's fine and good, except that's really kind of against what Scripture says. Scripture says there's a way in the heart of each man that seems right, but in the end. It leads to destruction. Yeah, to thine own self be true can cause grief for sure. Here's where it comes from. It comes from Hamlet. And I know y'all all know this and you know this scene, but I'll re- relay it anyways because y'all were y'all were really built up on Polonius and Laertes and their discussion uh, as the father's passing on wisdom to the son. And before he departs for Paris, the dad looks at Laertes and says, neither a lenderer nor a borrow be, which is another one that... People think in Scripture. No, the slave is, uh, the borrower is a slave to the lender. So, in the next line, he comes to the pinnacle of his fatherly wisdom. See, Shakespeare, the Bible, you know. There's actually a game out there you can play on the Internet, Shakespeare or the Bible. All right? Now, this is divergent, but, you know, part of the reason for that is because what until the last 30 years, what version of the Bible did people use? King James. When was King James written? 1611. 500 years ago. 
Anybody nobody anybody else writing in the 1600s? William Shakespeare. It's because Shakespeare sounds like the Bible because it was the language of England when the Bible was translated. I mean, we read it today and we think, well, that is high English. No, it was normal English then. Just like, I mean, and this is a hard thing to imagine, but 400 years from now, if America is still going and blowing in the English language, people may look back at us and say, but do you remember how those people used to talk back then? Man, they used high English, right? That's hard. It's, a ma- it's hard to imagine what low English will be like then. But that's the way it is, all right? So Polonius and Laertes are having the discussion. And the next lines after that, the pinnacle of the fatherly wisdom, he says, this above all, to thine own self be true. And it must follow as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. Now, here's the thing I think that that says to us. And I think the reason that it is so popular in America today is because it brings together the point of self and truth. And it makes people think that whatever they have in themselves is the truth. Americans have become involved in a love affair with self. Mantra could be take care of yourself, know yourself, love yourself, be true to yourself. Self has become the basic standard for truth. Americans bow, as one pastor said, to the sovereign self. But you think about Jesus in Mark 8:34 when he says, "If any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me." Today we hear love self, protect self, promote self, and Jesus said, "Deny yourself." It wasn't talking about denying yourself something like going without food or pleasure. He meant to deny the desire to constantly climb onto the throne of your life. Some of you that are reading through Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren talks about in the worship chapter uh, that, that passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that says that we are to offer our lives, offer a living sacrifice. Somebody has said, what is, you know, first of all, the phrase living sacrifice is an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. And someone has said the amazing thing about God is He calls us daily to crawl up onto that altar and to offer our lives and to realize that there are going to be times when we crawl off ourselves and we have to continually get back up. Here's the dangerous implications of that little saying is that it reinforces the world in which we live today. Here's the truth. We've got to wake up to the reality of what's going on today. Anybody remember the story Rip Van Winkle? What happens to old Rip? Falls asleep for how long? 20 years and two days in the original story. Now, I've got it, it depends on where you look. He falls asleep in the Catskill Mountains, wanders off from his um, um, nagging wife. Tries to find a place. I'm just retelling the story. I'm not giving testimony, all right? He goes to a place, and he crawls up next to a tree, and he puts his gun beside him, and he bows out. Well, there's a little part of the story. On the way, um, it's not a it's not a kid-friendly story. On the way, he finds all these little people around, and they have some kind of strange brew, and he decides to drink of the strange brew, and that helps put him to sleep. But when he wakes up, he realizes something's not quite right. He thinks someone's played a trick on him because his beard is now long, his gun is now rusted, and his dog is no longer with him. Rip fell asleep in 1766 in the book. 
and he woke up in 1786. Now, is there anything that happened in American history between 1766 and 1786? A little bit happened, right? You know, when he went to sleep, we were a colony of England. Uh, King George was in control. And when he wakes up, what he finds is that we're no longer a colony of England, that we're now a sovereign nation. And so he wakes up and he goes into town and there's, a, there's an old tavern where usually there was a picture of King George up there. And instead of seeing a picture of King George, he now sees a guy named General George Washington. And he's just blown away by how much changes while he's asleep. Now, the story is really about how we can sometimes let the world around us change without us ever knowing that it has happened. And the truth is, for some of us, perhaps all of us in this room, the world around us is changing and we aren't recognizing the difference. We have officially moved from the modern age to the postmodern age. The core values of postmodern thought could be summed up with this statement. Tolerance is more important than truth. Now, like many words, tolerance has a definition that has changed over time. Words today don't mean the same thing they meant. Um, For instance, we talked about the King James Bible. In 1 Corinthians 13, we call it what? 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. But that's not what it says in the King James. It calls it charity. Well, today, if you were to talk about that, you would think of an organization that helps people out, not love. That word has changed its meaning over time. Um, The word tolerance has undergone kind of the same change. It used to mean respecting the beliefs and practices of others without agreeing with them. So you respected what they said, but you didn't have to agree that they were right. Now, the word means that we must accept the beliefs and practices of others, even if we personally wouldn't hold them ourselves, and agree that they're okay with those thoughts. A new tolerance came to be in a postmodern world where objective truth is no longer there. George Barn has done all kinds of research talking to the American people, and here's some staggering thoughts. First of all, 72% of Americans agree with this statement. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Two people could define truth in totally conflicting ways, but both could still be correct. 72% of Americans said yes. 71% said there are no absolute standards that apply to everybody in all situations. 64% believe that all religions pray to the same God, even though they use different names. And 64% believe all religions are equally good. In 1987, it's been a long time ago now, right? 24 years? I was glad I wasn't out of high school yet. I I wasn't even out of middle school yet in 1987. In 1987, Alan Bloom wrote The Closing of the American Mind. He was a college professor. He wasn't right from a Christian perspective. But he said that Americans had replaced objective truth with European ideas of nihilism and despair. 
He said almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. They have been taught that the danger of absolutes is not error but intolerance. Relativism is necessary to openness, and openness has become the great insight of our times. To thine own self be true. Somebody has said that's become the life verse for millions of young people who are not only ignorant of what the Bible says, but they don't think the Bible's true anyways because it's not true for them. And we can see it in three different areas, this kind of working all together. One is this idea called civic individualism. Civic individualism uh, goes against what used to be in America where we would sacrifice the rights or liberties of one in order to be better for the whole. Today, what they ask is for the whole to sacrifice their liberty for the betterment of one. For instance, a few years ago at a West End High School in Salt Lake City, uh, they were going to have a graduation ceremony. They were rehearsing their, uh, their graduation ceremony, and they were singing two songs. One song mentioned the word God, and one song mentioned the word Lord. They weren't Christian songs. They were just traditional American songs. One of the students objected. Didn't want it to be sung. Took it to the Court of Appeals, sued them and said they can't sing it, and the Court of Appeals ruled in her favor. So as a result, because of one student's desire not to sing it, the entire student body didn't get to see it. You see the difference between that. Instead of her just saying, I'm not going to participate in the graduation, it's become, no, we have to allow her to, so we must not use those words. Chuck Colson has called this the tyranny of the individual in which one person can obstruct the rights of the majority. If the student had been requesting the right not to participate, that's something we can all agree upon. She could be excused, opt out as Christians often do when classes or studies are going to be against what they believe. But she was demanding something more, that the majority be prevented from singing songs she didn't agree with. It's this idea in our corporate setting that whatever an individual is offended we must all change our ways. Well, that's the, but most of the society outside of strong believers would agree with that. I mean, with, well, that's, what, that's her thing. We need to tolerate her and her thoughts. That leads to something called moral relativism, which you've probably heard. But that, that basic idea is that it's, there's no right or wrong. There's a right for me, a wrong for me, and there's a right for you and a wrong for you. And when it comes to right or wrong, just to your own self be true. One youth pastor was speaking to some teenagers, and one of the girls, you know, he was describing that is not something, uh, as premarital sex is not something that you should have or be a part of. And one of the girls stood up and says, I, I hear you saying that, and, but I just think if you think it's okay, if, if I think it's okay, then there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, didn't Jesus say all that really matters is what's inside your heart? And the youth pastor, pretty quick, says, I don't think that's what Jesus said at all. What he said, what he would agree with is what Jeremiah said, that if we trust our own heart, we find out it is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, and no one can know it. Moral relativism says something is right if it feels right. We live in a society now where moral decisions and right or wrong are determined by public opinion polls. Uh, Susan and I went and watched an interesting movie last weekend called The Adjustment Bureau. Some of you may have seen ads about it or may not. Some of you may have seen it or not. 
it's an interesting movie because the whole movie centers around this question of whether we have a free will or whether our life is destined by a chairman. Um, but there was a part in there that didn't get a lot of play. He, he, the main character loses a political election, and he's going out to give his consolation speech, and he basically just says, I'm tired of all of this. He says, do you know that the reason I wear what I wear is because of polling that we have done? We've determined that purple doesn't make me look strong enough and that blue makes me look boring, but that red is the color that everybody likes on me. And so I wear red. And I have to wear shoes. And I can't wear brand new shoes because then I lose the vote of the common people. And I can't wear really scuffed up shoes because then I lose the vote of the politicians and the lawyers. He said, so we literally paid a guy $50,000 to figure out how much my shoe should be scuffed. Now, here's the truth. They're doing that. And if you think, I'm not saying that none, but if you think that most of our politicians aren't making their decisions on moral issues, depending on what the polls tell them to say, then you've lost a bit of what our public discourse is about. And so this moral relativism has leaked its way in. Here's a way that I can tell it's leaking its way in. is because positions that used to be considered fringe now poll much better, and we see suddenly groups that thought they were terrible getting on board. And they may use different reasons, but they get on board. Here's just an example for you. Huh? This isn't a debate anything, okay? The, how we treat our planet. Ten years ago, there was a sharp divide between political parties on how we ought to treat our planet. And it was considered an issue that was a little radical. And if you looked at the poll numbers, 15 to 20 percent thought it was an important thing. Now if you look at the poll numbers, it's 70 percent. And guess what? Both parties are talking all about how we treat our planet. Now there are different ways we're talking about it. And there's still some places they're not going to agree. But that's not, the debate isn't about whether or not we shouldn't take strides there. All that is part of moral relativism. Henry Blarms has said in a book called The Christian Mind, ours is an age in which conclusions are arrived at by distributing questionnaires to a cross-section of the population or by holding a microphone before the lips of casually selected passerbyers in the street. In the sphere of religious and moral thinking, we are rapidly heading for a state of intellectual anarchy in which the difference between truth and falsehood will no longer be recognized. Indeed, it would seem possible that the words true and false could be replaced by the words likable and dislikable. Um, that's just where we are as a culture when it comes to morals. Situational ethics is the normal of the day. Black and white no longer exists. Now, here's the interesting thing. Sixty years ago, black and white probably existed too much. I mean, there were right and wrong was probably there weren't good discussion about it. Now, there's... It's just a pool of gray, which all of that leads to something called spiritual pluralism, which says not only are there no moral absolutes, there's no true religion. To your own self be true, and whatever you come up with is okay. There are studies out there that are coming out now about the young people of today, about the teenagers of today, and what they have discovered is they are the most syncretistic religious group America has ever seen. 
Now, syncretism, yeah, syncretism is when you have a belief, but you begin to take beliefs from other places and you just add it on to what you already believe. So, for instance, syncretism is when we go to, as missionaries, we go to Haiti and we share with them the gospel of Christ and they say, I'm going to accept that. But then we go back three years later and they're still doing the voodoo practices. They've just added the name of Jesus into their voodoo practices. Okay. So they've taken a part of it. Or we go to Brazil. We, we go to Brazil and we deal with something called uh, spiritism or animism down there. They, they, they were nature worshipers. And these, this, they got settled by the Spanish and the Catholics. And so all of this Catholic stuff came in. And so they used to believe that there were certain things that could ward off evil spirits from their house. Well, now the things that ward off evil spirits from their house are statues of the saints. They don't know the story of Jesus, but there's a statue of Mary and maybe even Jesus. And they hold it and they say, why do you have that? Well, that brings us good luck. That's syncretism. Yeah. I mean, like in Corinth, you have Paul kind of warning against that. You know, when Paul's talking about the eating meat sacrifice, some of those eat meat sacrificed to idols, when you have... um, now, you also have it in some ways with Judaism. It's a little different saying that you've got to become Jewish to become Christian. That was them trying to add Jesus over their already established rules. What, what's happening in our young people is they would say, well, I believe the Bible, but I also you start talking to them and they have ideas about karma. and They have ideas about um, uh, the yin and the yang and, you know, and uh, balance out good and evil and... Uh, the, the being in touch with the universe and you start hearing phrases that aren't Christian at all but they just kind of roll into what they believe um, we encourage this on a national scale um, just by the, the events that we do uh, think about after 9-11 you know people all think that right after 9-11 there was this great spiritual interest in Christianity again well, there was spiritual interest, but it wasn't initially in Christianity. I mean, just a few days after 9-11, they held a big thing called a prayer service for America in Yankee Stadium. And they had a prayer service for America. And people at the prayer service were a local Muslim leader, a Hindu, a Sikh, a black Protestant pastor, a white Protestant pastor, an Armenian archbishop, a Greek Orthodox archbishop, a male Jewish rabbi, and a female Jewish rabbi. And it was all led by... America's spiritual mentress, Oprah. And Oprah said this statement. We'll talk about this statement in just a second. When you lose a loved one, you gain an angel whose name you know. And on September 11, 6,000 angels angels were added to the roster. And what she was saying is all of these people here represent ways to heaven. I remember watching Oprah one day. Um... When she had Evander Holyfield. Y'all know who Evander Holyfield is? Boxer. Was an outspoken advocate for Jesus until it was discovered he wasn't living a life that he needed to be an outspoken advocate for Jesus. Um, found out he was bankrupt and had several kids with different ladies. But he was on this before all that came out. And she was talking about, Evander, when you get in that ring, do you ever pray? And he says, oh, yes, ma'am, I pray to Jesus. She goes, well, that's just good. You pray to whomever it is that you want to pray to. And he goes, no, no. I don't pray to whoever I want to pray to. I pray to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one that's going to help. He is the way. And she cut him off real quickly. Now, I'm not saying that to get on to Oprah, but Oprah symbolizes the niceness 
of including everybody. Um, a few years ago, dear Abby had a column where she criti- she uh, this, this woman wrote her and said, I, I, my relatives talk about their religion all the time, but I don't want to talk about their religion. How do I handle it? And dear Abby had told them just to, um, just to kind of ignore it, just try to move the subject. And so somebody wrote back to her and says, you answer to the woman complained that her relatives were arguing was, with her about religion. That, that response was ridiculous. You advised her to simply declare, declare the subject off limits. Are you suggesting that people talk about trivial, meaningless subjects so to avoid potential controversy? It is arrogant to tell people that there are subjects they may not mention in your presence. You could have suggested she learn enough about their, their religion to show them the errors contained in its teaching. Seems like a pretty good response. Abby didn't like that one. She wrote back, in my view, the height of arrogance is an attempt to show people the errors in the religion of their choice. That's the view out there. Don't show us what's wrong with our religion. No, I, I think it's a natural progression. Here's the thing. America is the most open experiment in democracy and freedom that has ever existed. We let anybody in. So we have no control over who comes into our... Well, I mean, we have some, but not as much as some people would like and more than others. And I just think over time, what, what we see is America is generally 50 years behind Europe in um, kind of cultural things. And this happened in Europe about 50 years ago. People just started to fall down this this enlightenment thought. It's where science takes us. We we can know so much about the world. Everybody wants to know it, so they dismiss supernatural things. And when you begin to dismiss supernatural things, you, you dismiss the things of God, the things of the Bible. And when you do that, you can't have any basis for moral absolutes. And so you just say, well, why do we even have them? And so the only thing that comes, well, it has to work for me. Whatever works for me is my moral system, whatever works for you. Now, nobody really believes that. Because everybody thinks that if you kill people, you should be punished. And so they have moral absolutes. I mean, they think that if you, for no reason, kill another person, you need to be punished for that. And so there are... they. Nobody really believes, if you think it's okay to murder me, I think it's okay. Nobody thinks that, okay? If I go up to Alan and I punch him in the face and say, well, for me, that was the right thing to do. He's not going to say, well, good for you. I'm glad. Yeah, and, 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 yeah I'm, but, but here's the thing. I think as believers in Tennessee, that's why I started with Rip Van Winkle. In some ways, it's like we're waking up into a world that we are completely unfamiliar with. And we watch and we go, I, I, how do they even think that? We, we, we live in a world where if you watch the television news and you, you just said, okay, I'm gonna, I don't know anything about a subject and I'm going to watch five news programs to find out the news. What you come away with is five interpretations of what has happened and you're more confused than you've ever been. I, I saw... I didn't watch the president's speech on Monday night, um, and so I can't judge it on, on its own merits. I've seen clips on four different news stations about it, and all four had different interpretations, and all four convinced me through the media clips they picked that their interpretation was right. I'm not saying that I was convinced that they were, but I mean, they picked the right clips, they made him say the right things, and so the Democrats had a very positive sit-in, the Republican channel did not, the comedy channel had a completely different view. I'm just saying that I've 
what I watch, here's what I watch. Sometimes I get, I try to get multiple perspectives. And part of the reason because I was doing this and I wanted to see how they manipulated it. Um, here's the crazy thing. Out of all three of them, no, I don't watch, I don't watch the comedy channel. Yeah, well, here's what I'll say about some of those on the comedy channel. So the comedians that I saw, they were more balanced about giving a little bit of both sides on this particular moment. They were critical of some things he said and positive than either other side that was, it was all the best speech that's ever been in the history of mankind or that's the worst speech that's ever been in the history of mankind. So I think we've gradually as a society moved to a point where we think we need God less. And as we've done that, we've got to find other things to replace it. And we're not replacing it with the stuff that it needs to be. I mean, there are scholars out there that have written books about how we got here. But none of them agree. And so um, the point is we're here. And it's different. And in reality, the way we communicate the gospel in a lot of churches is the same way we did in 1950 or 1960. And it's not 1950 or 1960. And it's, it's not even 1985 when I was in school. It's not even... 1998 when I was at Union. I mean, Union is a different place. I walked in. I had to go observe a class at Union. And I walked in, and there were five guys around me with beards that were this long and hair just everywhere. And they looked like hippies. I mean, really. But they were, they were strong believers, and they were talking about all kinds of stuff. And, and uh, they started talking about the slow food movement. You know what the slow food movement is? It's huge on Union's campus right now. It is the idea that you eat food as closely as you can to where it was grown. So you get it out of a garden and you eat it. You cook it. You, you try to get it as locally grown as possible. And there was a 30-minute discussion in a theology class about the importance of the slow food movement in understanding theology. Now, that's just different. And they're not, I mean, these people are committed believers of Jesus Christ. I mean, but that's just different, Right? It's different for me. Is it different for you? I mean, <laughs> yeah, good. The Normans walked in. I've got them scared now because Rebecca's going to Union next year. <laughs> yeah, you did. I mean, my great it's it's really a, it's really a journey back to the farm. It's a journey back to the farm, and they that and that yeah. And they talked about here's what they talked about is how we have so inoculated ourselves from human interaction. And one of them had been to Burger King and never saw a person. Went inside, punched, this was a new one, punched in their order, and it came down a chute to them. And they paid, and it was an experimental thing. They said, I never saw a person. And that, that's the way we like it. We don't, we don't go, you know, just think, if you, now some of you would say I'd rather go into the bank. But many of you would rather go to an ATM than go into the bank. People all around the world, I would bet the percentage of people that withdraw money from the bank in person versus those that get it at an ATM, I bet the ATM's way higher. So, not me. It is. Absolutely. And we've abandoned that. We've abandoned that. People think, and I said this Sunday morning, we're the most connected generation ever. Why? I could talk right now to, um, I mean, Deborah experienced this in some ways, the power of Facebook. Okay, Now, some of you are on Facebook, some of you are not. It got put on, on Facebook about Deborah's dad, and people all over the country knew about it. 
um, because we're connected that way. But we've also got this idea that reading about what somebody's child did yesterday at school somehow makes us in a community with that person, and it doesn't. I don't know how we got off there, but we got off there, right? No, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just saying that I, what I'm saying is that we, there's a movement out there to get turn back to, there, there's a guy named Wendell Berry. If you had not read any of Wendell Berry's stuff, he is an older guy from Kentucky leading this movement. Uh, and he is a guy, and he, you know, he says local grown ingredients. Being, he said, he tweeted out something the other day, you can't affect anything globally unless you first change something locally. Trying to get back to this community. And there are a lot of good things about that. There, there's no, when you're, like we are, there's no accountability. There's no, there's no closeness. And, and I'm, I'm talking about, it. you know, there, there's some of you in this room that remember when communities were communities. And you remember that, and you remember what that was like. And even you, even though you have friendships from that community, you can see that that's not true of the communities anymore. Um, you, you see that in churches. See it in the neighborhood. You don't know people like you did. You see it in churches where uh, that, that people have what they're involved in, and they, they're involved in this and this and this, and those are the important things that they're involved in the church. And we'll let... That other group do whatever they do. I'm glad they do that. But never the two shall meet. Or if we do, it's in a fellowship meal where I sit at the table with the people that I'm already spending time with. And I'm not saying that we don't have people that we're closer to in a community, but just the whole sense of a church being a community is much more difficult to foster today than it was 40 years ago. The church, and some of you grew up in this time. I, I grew up in a town where this was kind of the case, where I was on the back end of this. But the church was the social hub of the entire community. Um, when I grew up in Dyersburg, we had, on our youth group, we had um, 120. We were in a church this size, 120 youth group on Wednesday nights. Why? Well, first of all, we're in Dyersburg. There's absolutely nothing to do in Dyersburg, especially back then. That was before, I mean, because back then nobody did anything on Wednesday nights. You didn't have you didn't have homework. You didn't have ball. You didn't have any of that. None of that. It, schools knew that Wednesday night was a church night, and so the social community. You know, so kids where else in Dyersburg didn't have any place to help me to hang out. So you went to church and you hung out. Now, when I look back, a lot of those people were just there to hang out. And if I look at them now, fifteen percent of them are actively involved in a church. So it's not like we, yeah, stores in. And so you had all that, that kind of. And so you were drawn there. Today, people are fi- think they're finding that community in other things, in other social outings groups. But it's not the God-given community God's called us to. All right. I'm going to finish up real quickly because we're on point one of three. All right. Point one of three. All right. So this is what tolerance ought to be. And this is from a president from a few years ago, from 50 years ago, John F. Kennedy said, tolerance implies no lack of commitment to one's own beliefs. Rather, it condemns the oppression or persecution of others for theirs. So it's not saying that I agree with them. It's saying nobody should kill them for it. But that doesn't mean I agree with them. All right. So here's the thing. Our required response is we've got to speak the truth even when it's unpopular. Um, when it says to thine own self be true, that seems to suggest that everybody's is okay 
We know John 14:6 says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't say he was one of the ways, one of the truths, one of the lives. He said he is the truth, the way, and the life. Um, sometimes people say, well, Jesus was just a good teacher. And if he, that's what he believed, that's fine. But um, he was just a good teacher. C.S. Lewis commented about that. It's one of my favorite of all time. He says, if you'd gone to Buddha and says, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, you are still under the veil of illusion. That's untrue. If you'd gone to Socrates and said, are you the son of Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you'd gone to Muhammad and said, are you the son of Allah? He would have killed you before making, after making you repent of even asking him the question. If you'd asked Confucius, are you heaven? He would have said, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. No great teacher has ever said he is God. The only person who can say that sort of thing, C.S. Lewis said, is either God or a complete lunatic, suffering from the form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. We have got to be willing to speak the truth. And we must choose to obey God rather than man. We need to understand that, that this country, and the truth is, uh, people think, well, are you gloom and doom about it? Does that mean, you, you know, it's a terrible place? No. In fact, I think it's an exciting opportunity. When I've done research, um, and I'm not the only one. Rick Warren actually says this in his book, Purpose Driven Church. There are others that have said this. When you look at it, there is no time as similar to our time in America as the first century world in which Jesus found himself. Rome was a divine own self be true kind of place. I mean, they had a they had a remember Paul goes and speaks and he speaks uh, in this place that's got all these gods. And what does he speak about? He speaks about the statue they have to the unknown God. Why? Because they were scared they were going to miss one. That's what it means. They had, a, they had a statue to the unknown God. In case there's one out there we didn't get, or several, we're going to pray to him. They had all these gods. They had different people from all over. I mean, Paul's day, you think we live in crazy times. In Corinth, they had a temple where the way that you worshipped is that you involved yourself with prostitutes. That was your worship, your act of worship. That was the way you worshipped that God. So when Paul's writing to Corinth and they've got all these issues with those kind of things, he's in a very real place. If you read Romans chapter 1, you think you're reading the front page of the Tennessean some days. And stuff going on all over the place. And so it's not that kind of thing where it's a, a hopeless situation. But what it does mean is we have got to evaluate whether or not we're communicating the truth in a way that in the 1950s we had a established base of what everybody believed. And it was just... Ask them to go ahead and act on what they knew. Or calling them to admit that they had fallen so deeply into sin they needed the Savior that they had heard about since the time they were a kid. To today, when we have people that are moving in here, I heard the statistic the other day, in the next 10 to 15 years, it's they have projected a million more people moving into the Nashville area. A million more people moving into the Nashville area. And those people aren't moving from... Hohenwald, Tennessee. I was at Chef's Market yesterday. I was eating lunch with Tom Hulls. He said to tell y'all hello. Tom and I were having lunch, and this, these two guys were sitting beside us, and they were talking about how much they love Nashville. And then they got, well, where'd you move from? Well, I moved from uh, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, and the other one was from Arizona or somewhere out west. 
And they just moved here because this is where they wanted to come and live. Those are the kind, we're going to be interacting with people that don't have a southern, bring up, you go to church background. And we're going to be dealing with, and we're going to be people like Carol. I mean, that's what we're going to have. I mean, we're surrounded by Carols. We're going to have people that are grown up in our own towns, that grew up in Goodlesville, Tennessee, that grew up in Ridgetop, Greenbrier, that have never really been introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our neighbors are from California on one side. Well, I mean, they, they, they've, been, they've lived here for several years, but they, and they're an older couple. They're, their health is failing, but they're from California, and they're, we've talked to them about church, but it's almost like a foreign concept to them. You know, used to you go, where you go to church? Well, we we're Methodist or we're Presbyterians or well, I'm a little back. You know, we used to go, but I hadn't been going there as much as we ought to. Or we always had those kind of discussions. But now it, you can talk to some people that are right around us, and it's well, there's no need for that. Never done that. And so you have to start at a different place. So in that though, we've got to choose to obey God rather than man. Alan and I were talking a little bit earlier, and this is we're going to close with this. Yeah. I knew some people from Holden Wall. It's a good place. Here's what I would say, Doug. I think it's time to start sharing the gospel. That's what I would say. I think it's time to share the gospel. Um, we were talking today. There, there's a huge controversy. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there is a pastor in um, uh, Illinois by the name of Rob Bell. And he's written a book called Love Wins. Uh, it's been, I mean, it's gotten on CNN. It's gotten on all over. Because he has proposed that in the end, love wins. And that Jesus will, in the end, convince everyone that heaven is the right choice. And so some people may go to hell for a while, but that it's not eternal. Okay. Now, he writes it in such a way that he can defend he didn't say that, and he can defend he can say that. Well, as you can imagine, some Christians, writers, kind of got on to him. And I don't agree with the way that they got on to him because they attacked him instead of talking about the idea. But all that's not the point. In today's Baptist and Reflector, is that today's? There's an article by a guy named David Platt, who's my age, pastor in Birmingham, written a book called Radical that, that a lot of people have read. David Platt... It's on there. He doesn't defend Rob Bell. He doesn't really criticize. I mean, he says that he believes hell is a very real place and all of that. But he says this. He says, but most of the people in our churches today are living their lives as if they believe Rob Bell. Because they don't care one bit about what's happening to their neighbors. And they think, well, somebody will get to them someday. They're not taking the time to share their faith with anybody. He says, so you can criticize him all you want to for writing it. But the question is, are you living it? And so that's where the conviction comes down. When somebody says, to thine own self be true, that's not biblical at all in any way. The truth is, God's called us into a relationship with him that causes us to deny ourselves, that go towards him. Um, we're not going back to 40 years ago in this country. And in some ways, that's a really bad thing. And in some ways, that's an okay thing. But where we are is in a place where we have 
if a million people move into Nashville and you take the best estimates out there, that means 700,000 of them are going to need Jesus. And that's probably a low number. That means that in the 500,000 people that live within about a 20-minute drive of this church, think about that, that about 400,000 of them need Jesus. And so the question is, are we allowing people to think to thine own self be true is okay? Or are we telling them the truth of the gospel?